Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. I can barely see you (laughs) through the smog that has overtaken New York City. Uh, We're recording this on Wednesday, and it looks real bad outside. Yes, so uh, if you're not on the East Coast, uh, we are currently under a blanket of smoke from the wildfires in Canada. So this uh, prayers for the people in Canada who are dealing with the actual fires. But here in New York, uh, it's very eerie looking. Yeah, it's I've never seen the city look like this before. It's really like kind of like orange and yeah, hazy. hazy. Smells like a bonfire outside. I do like that part. I love bonfires. Yeah, normally smell. it's a good thing, but I, I feel like it's really not great for uh, breathing right. in general. But we are currently in this uh, climate-controlled studio, so that's the good news. And we have a great show this week. Yes, we are talking to Linda K. Wertheimer. She is the author of a really interesting piece that appeared recently in the New Republic in partnership with the Heckinger Report. It's titled "Inside the Christian Legal Crusade to Revive School Prayer." Right. So this issue of whether prayer belongs in schools in one form or another, people think it's some people think it's totally settled. Some people are trying to put They're it like, back. Wait, what? Into... We're not allowed to pray in school. <laughs> right. Some people are like some people think you can pray in school, public schools. Um, we were talking. We had totally different experiences that we share uh, mm-hmm. on the podcast growing up. So fascinating conversation. And Linda's a really great guy. Both some of the history behind prayer in public schools and also the shifting legal landscape that's currently happening. So. Stay tuned for that conversation. And Linda suggested that we drink a nice, refreshing mojito, which I think is great for our apocalypse city. So cheers. cheers. And now we have Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What is our first story, Zach? So once again, we're recording this on Wednesday afternoon. Um, And so we've been following these reports today where Pope Francis is recovering from surgery in Rome's Gemelli Hospital. Yes. So Pope Francis underwent surgery uh, to repair a hernia in his abdominal wall. The surgery lasted for three hours, and the Pope was required to be under general anesthesia for the duration of the surgery. Yeah. And so this comes after Pope Francis had visited the hospital yesterday, I believe. So on Tuesday, um, for what the Vatican was calling sort of a routine checkup. Tuesday is also the day he doesn't typically have meetings in, uh, during this time period where he went to the hospital. So made people think, OK, presumably something came up during this routine checkup that made them make the call to have the surgery today. Right. And the good news is Vatican says the surgery was completed without complications. And um, in a press conference a few hours after the surgery, uh, the surgeon also confirmed that. He said, quote, the Holy Father is awake and alert and is already cracking jokes. Yes, which is uh, <laughs> typical. <laughs> typical Pope Francis. Last time we, uh, we should remind people, last time he was in the hospital, he uh, threw a pizza party. 
Um, so I'm sure he's still livening up the place quite a bit. Right. Uh, and, and more good news, the surgeon also said that while they were doing the surgery, they didn't detect any other pathologies. Uh, there had been rumors after the Pope had surgery on his colon in 2021 that there had been cancer discovered. I don't think there was any justification for these rumors. And the Pope himself called the speculation court gossip. So hopefully this uh, press conference from the surgeon will put those rumors to rest. So the Pope is expected to remain in the hospital for seven days and all of his audiences and meetings have been canceled until June 18th as a precautionary measure. But uh, we're going to be following this story. The Our team at Inside the Vatican is definitely following the story. So we're offering our prayers for a speedy recovery for Pope Francis. What's our next story, Ashley? On Monday of this week, a state school board in Oklahoma voted to approve what would be the first publicly funded religious school in the nation. So the school in question is St. Isidore of Seville Virtual Charter School. Fun fact, St. Isidore, he is the patron saint of the internet. So it makes sure makes sense that he would be involved with a virtual charter school. Yeah, so charter schools are public schools, so in the sense that they receive taxpayer dollars, but they're more independent than your typical public school. So they've got more autonomy. um, They're free to kind of shape their own curriculums and certain things. And so this is what makes this, um, what I've been like thinking about is like a gray zone on top of a gray zone for Mm -hmm. how this is being sort of like decided and handled. Yeah, because usually it's like a private management firm that's getting the money from the government to run these schools. Um, But in this case, it's, it's the Archdiocese of Oklahoma together with the Diocese of Tulsa This online school would be open to students across the state serving kindergartners through 12th grade, um, and religious education would be embedded within the curriculum, which is definitely new territory for charter schools. Right, yeah. It's like a full-on Catholic school, the way you would think about it. And people are mixed on whether or not this is going to get struck down in a court. So the state's Republican attorney general, uh, he thinks that it's a clear violation of the state's constitution. Um, But you know, recent court rulings have sort of opened up this idea that maybe this is is possible. You know, like one argument I've heard is like similar to other government agencies. They work together with uh, nonprofits. So like think Catholic Charities, for example, right? Like they get government funding because they, you know, perform a public good. Um, and because the state is sort of working with non-state actors to run a state service, like in charter schools, that they can't discriminate against a religious group Uh, doing that same thing, because that would be a discrimination. Right. And I think the uh, Catholics in Oklahoma who support this, you know, look to the current Supreme Court, see their decisions where they have said that if if um, I think it was a Supreme Court case in Maine where the state was giving tuition assistance and scholarships to students to go to private schools, they ruled that you have to open that up to uh, Catholic and other religious schools as well. So if I can see the logic that they're following, but when your own attorney general is saying this is clearly against the Constitution of Oklahoma, you're kind of, I don't know. Yeah. It could go either way. <laughs> yeah, no, we'll see what happens. Um, and we, we picked the story this week both because it's a big deal, but also because it just like lends itself well to the conversation that we're about to have with Linda Wertheimer. This uh, space of public schools, religion and charter schools, it is uh, deeply, deeply contentious in this country. And there's a lot of like cultural things happening, a bunch of legal things happening and trying to sift through um, all of that is really difficult. So um, we'll be following the story. So stay tuned. Thank you. 
Joining us from Lexington, Massachusetts, is Linda K. Wertheimer. Linda is an independent journalist and the author of the book Faith Ed, Teaching About Religion in an Age of Intolerance. Her most recent article, published in The New Republic in partnership with the Heckinger Report, is titled Inside the Christian Legal Crusade to Revive School Prayer. Welcome to Jesuitical, Linda. Thank you. Great to be here. It's great to have you. And we're excited to talk to you about your uh, most recent article here in a little bit, but wanted to start with uh, some of your own background and experience uh, growing up in Ohio. Go figure, I wanted to start with Ohio, also having grown up there. Um, but you have a, an entire chapter in your book about what it was like sort of moving from New York to Ohio, where there weren't a lot of other Jews in the area. Yes, I pretty much discovered that the very first week of school. I was in fourth grade and the stranger comes into my classroom and she's carrying what I later learned was called a flannel graph. And she starts talking to us about Jesus and she starts putting, you know, figures of Jesus and his disciples on this flannel graph and telling us all the miracles he did. And then at one point she starts uh, having us sing songs like Jesus loves me. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And I'm, I'm sitting you know, kind of shrinking into my chair. And I went home, I told my parents about it. And they said, well, you know, they really can't do that. This is illegal. It violates the constitution. They go tell the school district, you know, you can't do this. And I can get a little bit more into that later if you want. But ultimately, my parents chose not to fight. They chose not to sue. Um, because I think they quickly realized we were a minority <laughs> in very tiny terms. In fact, the only Jewish family in the entire school system, which wasn't that big. They got me excused from the class. That was kind of the resolution. And that pretty much outed me because kids were like, well, why don't you go to this class? And I would be like, well, I'm Jewish. And I just immediately expected them to understand that if I said I'm Jewish, there's a reason I wouldn't want to stay in a class where someone is preaching Christianity at me. And instead what they would say is, well, do you believe in Jesus? I went, well, no. I say, well, you're going to go to hell. And you're also and you're also in fourth grade, like still like expected to be the defender of like what Jewish belief is, is I think a lot to ask. You mentioned you're just kind of learning about it yourself right. a little bit. Well, right. Yeah. I mean, I think let's see, fourth grade, I had gone to a little bit religious school, but my family wasn't that religious. You know, we didn't do what I'm much more religious as an adult. I celebrated my adult bat mitzvah in my early forties. So as an adult, as a mom now, we will sometimes do Shabbat at the dinner table and, you know, say a blessing over the challah, light the candles, sometimes we'll go to services, but I didn't really do that as a child. So yes, I was being expected to kind of defend my religion. Did I really know much about theology of my religion? No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and I was nine. Yeah. So. And what year was this? This was 19... 74, spring of 1974. Okay. And did this persist throughout your school years in Ohio? Yes. But there were things that happened all the way through my high school. They had religious assemblies where a pastor would be invited to lead us in prayer at the beginning of the assembly. They had Christian bands playing what I later learned are called praise songs. Um, and I usually, if I found out ahead, I would leave, you know, like I would go and I'd practice my flute. I became a much better classical flutist because of this. <laughs> but a lot of times I didn't know it was happening. So I'd sit there and sometimes I would leave. And sometimes I would just stay and deal with it. And but I would say is because I was kind of set apart 
what it led to was kids asking questions, kids trying to convert me on the way home from basketball practice. And there was an anti-Semitic incident that happened to our family. There was a kid who said something to me when we were learning about the Holocaust in high school and, and said a Jewish slur to me. I can be an invisible minority. This setup did not allow me to be invisible, nor did it make me want to say, hi, I'm Jewish. Yeah. So <laughs> what know? they saw is like an accommodation, like letting you get out of this class in some ways exacerbated the problem by singling you out for students who can be pretty cruel at those ages. Exactly. And once again, just reminding our listeners, this is at a public school, right? Um, and right. so I think there's going to be some people that hear this and go, what? That's insane. And then other people are going to listen to this and be like, oh, that was my experience in public school. Even Ashley and I, I were talking before this and um, this rhymed with a lot of my experience. I wouldn't say it was exactly the same. Um, we were a little closer to a big city where I grew up. So there was a bit more diversity. But still, I remember, you know, experiences where we'd have like a Christmas assembly and the kids that there would be like a handful of kids that would go be in the library during the Christmas assembly at school and be like, oh, that's weird. What are why didn't they come? Um, whereas your experience was totally different, actually. Yeah. Right? So I grew up in Arlington, Virginia, Northern Virginia, right outside D.C. And it was there was no religion in my high school or middle school that I can remember. The, the one like religious controversy I can think of is uh, my favorite English teacher was reprimanded for teaching a part of the Bible like as literature and like even that was too much too much oh, Bible no, and that is for legal. our public school <laughs> I know yes. so so like when I hear these stories I'm like no way that they're doing that in public school right <laughs> so what was happening to me in Ohio you know that was in the 70s and I know because I did some research that they were continuing that until the early 80s until somebody complained in that particular school district. And I think a lot of this stuff goes on until somebody complains. And, but what I think people should understand is this was the Supreme Court ruled in 1948, 1948, you know, almost 30 years before I had those experiences that this kind of teaching in a public school classroom violated the constitution, that it was clearly stepping over this line, separation, church and state, clearly evidence of a teacher or a school district promoting one religion over another. Maybe we could just back up a little bit and yeah. go over what is the what does the Constitution say about? Because I think a lot of people have ideas about what yes. they think the Constitution. Yeah, so the Constitution doesn't get extremely specific. You know, it's the First Amendment and the First Amendment, and I don't have it sitting in front of me, so somebody will have to go back and read the language. But essentially what it says is there shall be no establishment of a religion, you know, by the state. But it also says within this thing called the Establishment Clause, like while the state can't establish a religion that, you know, we should also have freedom of religion. And then what is the state, right? The state should be something that our public money is supporting, whether it's a school district or the government or the town. But the Supreme Court has really ruled differently and then what you have to look at is how does the Supreme Court ruled on it? And it's so the questions are like, what is the state? What does establishing mean? What is right. privileging? Right. And, and I, the Supreme Court has clearly said that school is state. You know, school is the equivalent to state and no school cannot promote religion. But we do have like a chaplain in the U.S. Congress. Yeah. And just to give like a brief outline, if you can, of because from like the 1840s when we got public schools until, I guess, 1948, and then in the 60s when there were other Supreme Court rulings, it was pretty common to have, you know, Bible study and prayer in schools, public schools, right? Yes. Okay. 
And that yes. led to some conflict, I, I yes, imagine. I, yes. I mean, and, and what's interesting, and I think a lot of people don't know this, and I dug up a lot of this research for the New Republic and the Hechinger piece. Um, and some of it's in my book, but more of the later history. But in the early history, despite the Constitution saying that, there had not been any Supreme Court rulings on it yet to kind of specify, well, what does this really mean? And in the beginning of the country, it was majority Protestant, right? So what... Not talking about the Native Americans, but you know the people who came mm-hmm. later. So they were like, "Well, yeah, we should be able to read our Bible and have the prayers in the schools." And the first readers were all based on Christian scripture and specifically Protestant Christian scripture. And where the battles began first were between the Catholics and the Protestants, and it was over which Bible to use. Oh, interesting. <laughs> um, so the Catholics weren't like, get prayer out of schools. They're like, we well, just want the Catholics our- were like, don't impose your prayer on us. Mm-hmm. There were famous battles in Boston and Philly, I think, in, and in Cincinnati over this between the Catholics and the Protestants. And in Boston, um, a Catholic priest had told a school kid, refuse it, you know, refuse to read the King James Bible. So the kid did, and he was beaten. And then there was a walkout in the North End this Elliott school in the North end of Boston. And this ultimately led to bigger discussions on what should we do. And then the first Supreme court rulings on this though, didn't happen to the 1960s. So I think there was neutered down prayers later. So it's really, it's America becoming more diverse. That is, is leading to people to question how, and if we should be praying in school. And of course that's, we're only getting more diverse up until this day. Right. Right. And and then the one thing I would say is you'll hear people who like oppose the 1960 rulings say we kicked prayer out of the schools and kids can't pray in schools. Kids always have been allowed to pray in school. There's a difference between a kid just praying over their lunch at school or praying in their head or praying whatever than a teacher leading one prayer to all of the kids. And that's kind of the distinction. There's always been freedom to practice your own religion anywhere. And I feel like it does get kind of used as like this thing you can blame any sort of societal ill on in certain circles. It's like, ah, you know, the real problem behind X is that we took prayer out of schools. (laughs) And so it really does, it is like this sort of cure-all for a lot of people in a lot of cultures where it's like, oh, if we just put the prayer back into the schools, we'll fix things. In your your recent article, you sort of document what's happening today because you know we've talked a little bit about you know American history and your own history, but uh, here in the I mean in the 90s and the 2000s and the 2010s, these are still pretty unsettled questions despite a number of different Supreme Court rulings on this. Yes, in one way, it's not an unsettled question. I mean, in the 1960s, the courts very specifically ruled that teachers should not be leading prayer in schools. There shouldn't be teacher-led prayer, and there's been other cases there shouldn't be clergy-led prayer. But the courts have generally agreed you can't, you shouldn't be forcing prayer onto kids. They did agree about that. But then over time, there's been sort of this whittling away at those rulings by some of these Christian legal funds that I mentioned in my article and by a conservative movement that wants to ultimately try and reverse as much of the 1960 rulings as they can. And sort of the big shift in recent years was last summer's rulings, in particular, Kennedy versus Bremerton. And can you explain the details of that case? Sure. So last summer, 
the Supreme Court ruled in favor of Joseph Kennedy, who is a football coach in Bremerton, Washington. So he was very regularly leading football players in a prayer at midfield right after the game ended. If you see photos of him, he the, the coach is actually holding up a helmet of a player of each team as he's leading them in prayer. But the facts in the case as presented by the majority opinion that ruled in favor of the coach was they said it was a quiet prayer at midfield. So there's dispute in the facts of the case by both sides. The court ruled in favor of this guy and said, sure, it was fine for him to do his private prayer at midfield. But the way it's been interpreted nationally on people on both sides is this sort of gives free license to bring back sort of prayer football games over the loudspeakers and prayer at graduations and prayer at events because, hey, if this guy, you know, the Supreme Court said it was okay for this coach to do this, then why can't we all do this at events? And so it this has really upset the apple cart. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know, this sounds familiar to me, but I, growing up playing sports, I remember lots of people. There was there was regularly led prayer. Usually, it was like an Our Father or something. Um, but I do think that I, I remember most coaches would like let a player lead it. Um, and he, but here's the thing I find interesting about this case is like uh, it's of course no one's being like forced to participate in this prayer in that like no one's being coerced in an overt way but if you are a 15 year old who is maybe the uh the backup quarterback who's struggling for playing time and all your friends are going to midfield with the head coach who makes decisions about your playing time and social status in the school if you think that's free from coercion i think you're kind of living in a different reality that's never stepped foot in a, a mean public high school setting a little bit so it was actually Americans United for Separation of Church and State that argued that point, <laughs> that in a, in a sense, you were coercing the whole team to participate because the coach is, he's a leader and you want to please the football coach. And in, and in fact, I talked to some parents who said that same very thing had happened to their child. And, and I don't, you know, in my story, I mentioned Hayden Baugh, who was on the fishing team. And on the fishing team, they did a prayer and he felt like, yeah, I kind of had to, you know, you don't want to stand out. You know, I kind of have to join in kind of thing. And yeah, it was like, if I was at my high school graduation, they had prayer and I didn't mouth the prayer, but I felt like if I stayed seated, I was going to make myself stand out. 
You know, I mean, this happens at Catholic Mass all the time when someone doesn't know when it's time to sit or stand. It's like, oh, that person <laughs> hasn't that person hasn't been in a little while. So it's a, it is an, it is an outing that happens a lot. Yeah, I, there's a quote in my story from Matthew Staver, who is with one of the Christian legal funds, and he said, "Well, you know, uncomfortability, being uncomfortable, is not unconstitutional." And so it was sort of interesting to hear that said. Well, that that's something I. I'm trying. I'm struggling with here because I think, and it's I, not. I think it's right. It, it's right, and I think I think in principle I, I'm okay. I'm not. I don't, I'm not a constitutional scholar, so this is just gut reaction. Like I'm okay with a coach praying on the field. If he's it's not coercive, he prays. Students choose to join him. Okay, where it becomes you know more difficult is when you have such a like dominant culture where it's mostly Christians and like two Muslim students and one Jew and they feel marginalized because, you know, in, in principle, I'd be like, yeah. And then if it's a Muslim coach, he can go to the middle. If, you know, Muslim call to prayer comes during a game, he should be able to go and pray and um, and, you know, whatever version of that is for different religions. But of course, that's not the reality in a lot of places. So how to how to shape law that accounts for that that general principle where I think we should accommodate as much religion as possible without crossing the constitutional line while not, you know, hurting students. The school district offered a solution to the coach and they said, well, you know, you don't have to do it in the middle of the field and make it so public. You could go to the locker room afterwards and pray or pray to the side. But by taking it midfield where he often gathered with the players after the game too, that's where it sort of became a problem. I mean, yeah, that's like a pretty traditional. It's like, oh, we're going to talk. We're going to recap the game. I'm going to give my inspirational speech at, at the 50 yard line. And then I'll just like conclude it with a prayer is sort of. But yeah, I, I agree with Ashley. There is this like debate around religious freedom, what I'm calling the sane way of like debating it. There's a view that religious freedom is produce as much neutrality as possible. Be like totally like we're going to strip any whiff of religion from any kind of public space. Um, and then there's another, which is what Ashley mentioned, is like, we're going to create as many accommodations as possible for as many religions. I, I kind of look at it like in New York City, like if you, whatever language you speak, the city makes a, a goes above and beyond, or, or at least I guess I don't know that for sure, but it seems like they go above and beyond to find an interpreter to help you navigate city services, right? And so with religion, it's like, uh, could like a school go above beyond to accommodate as many religions as possible? I, I'm curious what, is, is that, is there anyone thinking about it in those terms? Yes. I mean, I, and I've actually written stories about colleges making accommodations, public colleges as well. Um, there've been, a, there's been a lot of discussions about religious accommodations in schools. And there are schools that have created prayer spaces that can be used by Muslim students who go there, Jewish kids, Christian kids, anyone. Um, and that is like, you know, like there are Muslim kids who need to pray five days, five times a day. So they could go there during a break or the appropriate time or for Christian, you know, so it was open to everyone, but they initially created it at the request of some Muslim students. And they felt this was a question of religious freedom. They didn't have to do this. The distinction is just teachers and school leaders should it, not be really involved. Really, the distinction is between the adults and the kids, right? Mm -hmm. So the adults should not be proselytizing to school children. And that was part of the issue in Boisier Parish, Louisiana, that I wrote about. Um, and the adults should not be leading prayer, whether it's at the graduation or, you know, the football game or whatever. They shouldn't be leading prayer to other students when they're on the job. 
Yeah, so I want to go to go to Boisier Parish. Is that how you say it? Yeah. <laughs> so this is in Bozier, Louisiana, Bozier. Uh, the Bible Belt proper. Um, so so it seemed like what you learned there is that people could kind of go under the radar um, and keep this prayer up until someone complained. So can you can you just give us an outline of of what happened in in the school uh, you visited there? Sure. So. And it was actually a school district. Um, they didn't technically allow me into any of the schools, by the way. <laughs> um, but I did go to a football game, um, which is open to the public. So Bossier Parish is a 23,000 student school system in Louisiana, right across the Red River from Shreveport. Yes, it's in the middle of the Bible Belt. And so it's not surprising that there would be prayer in the schools there. But what was kind of surprising is they had been sued by three families for more than a hundred pretty clear violations of separation of church and state, including prayer of the loudspeaker at football games, teachers leading prayer in uh, elementary classrooms, a teacher, teachers actually requiring kids to memorize a prayer <laughs> that they would say before lunch. Um, and that was, so I went back to see like what was still happening. So some of the things had stopped but some of them had not. And I didn't find this out by, you know, setting foot in a lot of schools because, like I said, they wouldn't let me in the schools. I did find this out by interviewing numerous people. And I interviewed a family whose daughter said, you know, teachers were leading her in prayer, but this was after the federal court had told them to stop promoting Christianity in this way. I went to the football game where students were leading prayer over the loudspeaker, which a Supreme Court case had said was unconstitutional like 20 years ago. And, and there is a debate, by the way, over, well, if it's a neutral selection of students, they can do it. Um, but if it's like a regular practice, it becomes pretty clear that this is sort of a district tradition. They were still having prayer at graduation, and that was declared unconstitutional in 1992. And then there was just this general, like the school board meetings also always started with prayer. And there is a debate on whether that's legal or not right now because of a case about town towns doing that. And where do schools fall? But this had been a school district been told, stop, you know, stop promoting one religion. And they clearly had not stopped that based on my reporting on the ground. So it seems like the court approach is sort of like a case by case basis. And every time there's like, it's like, oh, we use loudspeakers and now we use email and now we use, it's like sort of like in what instance you have to like kind of relitigate this every time. I just want to quickly close the loop on the the Kennedy ruling, this case of the football coach leading prayer um, at the 50 yard line. Um, you said the Supreme Court ruled in favor of that coach, correct? And then how is that like shaking the apple cart, as you said, it, throughout the rest of the country? Okay. So what I would say is it's caused, you know, it's caused a lot of consternation amongst church state advocates because of the, and this is where it gets in the nitty gritty, because of what was written in the majority opinion. Because basically they said he could do a quiet prayer at midfield. Well, church state advocates would say that's fine too, but was he doing that? And I already went through that. But the second part was in that majority opinion did they actually try to turn back what had been established law for like 60 years? And they seem to say they didn't support the idea that coercion mattered, you know, that we were talking about earlier. Religious freedom on the behalf of people who wanted to practice it was trumping the idea of how it affected other people who didn't want it forced upon them. And within that majority opinion, a lot of the church state advocates felt 
that the court was leaning in a totally different direction than it had for 60 years. So nothing has happened yet to really change it. But if somebody files another suit and there are people looking for things they can do, they might change that case law from 60 years ago. So it's more like this threat. One thing I wanted to draw out from from your piece near the end, you you mentioned talking to an African-American man who talks about how prayer has been such a fundamental part of the African-American struggle in the United States. It's been their source of hope and strength and and including in the setting of schools. Um, and, I, and I was thinking about that because when you think about, you know, who are the most practicing religious people in the United States still, it's, it's often African-Americans. Um, this debate is often framed as like one of resurgent Christian nationalism. Um, But I think their experience kind of complicates that. It does, except it was interesting. And this was Reverend Jeter, um, who I met with. It does, except he said, I don't support forcing it. But he's like, I don't have a problem with the prayer that's there now. So, but he's not out there actively pushing. You know, he was the nuance in that article. Um, someone who kind of missed the way it used to be. But yeah, he also was involved in interfaith efforts in his own community. So he understands the importance of being sensitive to the fact that Christianity is not the only religion and, and nor is our Southern Baptists the only religion in, in Louisiana or even that part of Louisiana. So it was, I was excited that I found him because it shows the layers I don't really know how to answer that question. I, well, let me let me put a yeah. question to you. Do you think that one solution to this quandary we're in is more interfaith work, or is the only option to sort of just like try to push as much practice of religion from public spaces? So, I mean, legally, there's legally um, religion. One religion should not be pushed upon others. Period right? Based mm-hmm. on what the courts have said. But it's really in the, I mean, it's really the public school arena that the courts have been the strictest in those rulings. Um, do I support those? <laughs> I mean, I'm a journalist. Of course I support those because if we don't have something like that, there will be kids forevermore being ostracized, bullied, and harassed because that is what it has led to every time there's been forced religion in public schools. So should religion be wiped out of public society? I mean, no, right? It's not, it's there. I think interfaith stuff doesn't tend to happen in the public schools. It happens, you know, it happens at my temple and we'll have an interfaith service. And I think interfaith work in the United States is like just critical for promoting more understanding of different faiths. All right. Well, I thought we'd wrap this up by inviting you to pray with. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> but we are going to impose a Catholic we, yeah, we do, tradition on you. <laughs> no, we do. We, we do have a question we ask all our guests, um, okay. Linda, before we let you go. And we just wanted to thank you first for coming on the show and, oh, and breaking sure. down this thank topic. You. It's fascinating. Um, and I don't even think we like Ashley and I realized how different our own experiences were growing up. And yeah. so I am sure this is going to resonate with a lot of listeners. But before we let you go, uh, we do ask all of our guests if you could canonize one person, living or dead, uh, Catholic or not, Jewish or not, fictional or real, who would it be and why? So first of all, I have a confession. I know you asked that question because I listened <laughs> to one of your wonderful podcasts. And I was like, well, wait, I'm Jewish. We don't canonize people. But I have an answer, Great. provided you know that you know we don't make people saints. Yes. <laughs> so Mahatma Gandhi. Mm. Um, 
Can I read something he said? Please, please. Okay. I hold that it is the duty of every cultured man or woman to read sympathetically the scriptures of the world. If we are to respect others' religions as we would have them to respect our own, a friendly study of the world's religions is a sacred duty. Hmm. That's a great interfaith uh, note to end on, yeah. I think. Thank God. Yeah. All right. Again, the article is Inside the Christian Legal Crusade to Revive School Prayer in the New Republic in partnership with the Heckinger Report. Uh, Thank you so much for coming on, Linda. Thank you. It was wonderful meeting you. Now it's time for parish announcements, the part of our show where we ask you to please be seated before the final blessing. Uh, just a quick update. We want to give a huge thank you to a uh, new patron, uh, Kathleen Majera. Thank you so much for supporting the podcast. Uh, it's good to see your name. Kathleen joined us on our pilgrimage to Italy last fall. So thank you for supporting the show. And one quick correction, because a couple weeks ago, I, I gave a thank you to a patron and I got this person completely wrong. I read the name incorrectly, assumed it was someone else. So I'm going to correct the record and say a huge thank you to Mike Tierney which is not what I said last time. So, Mike, thank you for uh, supporting the show and for being very gracious in pointing out my error in your email. So that's it for this week. And now it's time for As One Friend Speaks to Another, the part of our show where we talk about where we're finding God in our lives this week. Uh, and I'm going to go back a couple weeks. All right. <laughs> Drawing on the the deep well of inspiration that was my two weeks well, in you, Jordan. You, you don't take a two-week vacation very often, so I feel like when you do, you can get a lot of mileage, at least for your faith life. I hope so. <laughs> Good. All right. So what we got? So one of the more Catholic uh, events of, of my time there uh, was going to Mount Nebo. And this is um, the mountain that... Moses went up. He got a view of the promised land after wandering in the desert for 40 years, uh, but he never made it to the promised land. So I I went up this mountain. Uh, It was around sunset. So I I was like, oh, this is going to be beautiful. I'm going to see the land of milk and honey at sunset from this mountain. And then I got to the top and I looked where Moses would have looked towards towards the promised land, and I was a little disappointed. <laughs> mm, not because you weren't going to get there someday, yeah. <laughs> but because of what you saw. Yeah, it wasn't the most lush, beautiful scene. I, w- I would not want to settle down there. <laughs> this view is not going viral on TikTok no. because of how so beautiful it is. So in theory, you can see a little bit of the Dead Sea. You can see the Jordan River Valley, but it's a little it's a little dusty, deserty. Maybe it was just dry season. Maybe it was more <laughs> lush when, when Moses was there. But, you know, it's kind of like processing this, this disappointment because whenever you go to a holy site, like you have these expectations and then they either meet it or they don't. Um, but it kind of made me think about, you know, the promised land that we think about as as Catholics, you know, heaven, the kingdom of God, and, you know, what my own expectations for that are. And I've always had, like, a very clear idea of what heaven is, and it's it's all the people I have ever loved, including the ones that I no longer love and who have hurt me and I hate. And I'm right here. <laughs> and so all those people are there, and some of those people in this life hated each other, but in heaven... We all love each other. The people, you know, everyone loves each other. And so, but there's like people there, like specific personalities that mm, I've okay. known on earth. And so I was like, well, I just like had this thought of like, what if I get to heaven and it's not that? Like clearly I'm not, if I'm in heaven, I'm not going to be disappointed. 
but is there something I should be praying about on earth to like adjust my expectations or widen my expectations or be like, okay, I know whatever it is, it's greater than anything I'm imagining. So like, what is that? Yeah, it's interesting because I feel like there's a number of approaches that Catholics take. It's like heaven. Well, it's not hell. And that seems really bad. So um, that's, you know, my motivation is to get to the place that's not hell. Um, I tend to like get really freaked out by thinking about heaven too much. I treat it kind of like I treat space and the ocean in the sense that they're so vast and incomprehensible to me that I get a little like anxious or freaked out if I if I think about it for too long. In, in particular, like, I don't know, like the thought that like, there might not be like these like human bonds the way we have them in this life, like either my spouse or my family. It's like those kind of like go away in heaven. And, you know, we're all in just like uh, divine bliss for all of eternity. This is the other thing. Eternity. That sounds like a very long time and I would get bored. And so I'm like anxious about that. And so I tend to just like avoid doing that altogether. Yeah. I have this trust that like I do think it'll be better than anything that um I can imagine, but then I still have to deal with my feelings on earth of like the losses, the the mischances and like how, how do those get reconciled? And I believe that they will, but I still deal with those kind of the same anxiety and fear of loss and mm-hmm. uh, on, on earth. And so one thing when we were talking to Father Sundrup, he was like, well, what do you think Moses said to God when he looked over the promised land that he never made it to? Um, and what would it what would that conversation between you and God look like and talking about um, heaven? And so I'm just starting that <laughs> that line of prayer, as it were. But I, I think it's a really interesting one. Listeners, do you have a, a, a clear idea of heaven? Would you rather not think about it? Um, if you could talk to God about what it is and isn't, uh, what, what would you ask? Would God say, oh, baby, do you know what the, that's worth? Maybe <laughs> heaven is a place on earth? <laughs> Maybe. I don't think that's what he would <laughs> no. say. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, I will get us out of here on that great note. You're welcome. <laughs> Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes with production assistance from Cristobal Spielman and Kevin Christopher Robles, who is also our sound engineer. Live studio audience provided by Anna and Patrick Gordon. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And if you're on Apple or Spotify, leave us a review. Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Loeschert Studio at America Media in New York City. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week.